Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. Welcome everyone to Fortress on a Hill. We have a, a really great special episode for you guys today. Um, Danny and I <clears throat> are going to talk about his new book, Patriotic Descent. It's uh, coming out on September the 8th. Is that right, Danny? That's right. Yep, the 8th. Um, coming out on the 8th. Um, it is, it, it's an amazing book. It's an, um, the, the, the history and the, the examination of patriotism that I've read about so far has been really empowering and eye-opening. In, in a few different ways. Um, but before we start talk, talking about it real quick, I wanted to real quickly share with you guys our email and social media channel links. Um, they're usually in the show notes, so if you ever want to find them, they're there. But I don't say it on the podcast very often, so I want to take 30 seconds and do that real quick. Uh, our email is fortressonahill uh, at gmail.com. And you can email any questions, any thoughts you have, ideas for episodes, anything like that. On Twitter, you can find us at Fortress on a Hill. Same deal with, with Twitter. And at Facebook, at uh, Fortress on a Hill. So, r- real simple. It's, it's all Fortress on a Hill. So, so Danny, um, let's start talking about this book. I, um, like I said, I've I, I really been enjoying reading it. You know, I, I always learn so much from your writing, period. But this this fit into a different a different vantage for me. Um, something that I, I think we should talk about at some time, but we don't need to di- discuss today, um, is I've noticed more and more as we've done the podcast that you and I were in very different wars, if you'll, we'll say. Um, you know, that the, the stories that you told me, the missions that you've been sent on, the amount of death that you saw both among your troops and among um, innocent civilians during your time, uh, has been really eye-opening for me, um, but I've 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 started to to look at your writing in that way and asking myself about the things that I didn't experience because, um, you know, so much of the military is tied up in combat support, which means that if you're not an infantryman, a cav scout, a tanker, um, there are things that you just don't see. You know, there are just events and missions and and possibilities of war that you just don't consider, and so. Um, <clears throat> Moving forward, I hope that you and I get the chance to talk about that um, at some time. But um, I'm going to turn it over to you for a minute. Will you tell the tell the folks what the the, the book is about and uh, how you got around to writing it? Yeah. Well, first thing I'm really glad you brought up is um, this idea of different wars. Um, there's a couple of things that I think are important about that. So. Um, even within the same unit, as I've written about a bunch, uh, even in the first book, uh, people will like 
experience the same events differently. So there's that, right? There's the psychological aspect of the confusion of war and various viewpoints. And then, you know, there's the different kinds of jobs. And most people don't realize, you know, the tooth to tail ratio, in other words, how many uh, combat sport, combat service sports soldiers there are for every, you know, combat uh, arms, right? So basically foot soldier, like how many, it's, you know, it's what is seven, eight, nine to one. And it, it changes over the years. So, you know, back in the day, like in the civil war, it was like one to one. And then in World War II, it's like three to one. And then in Vietnam, and now it like really pushes up to like closer to 10 to one. Uh, that does not mean those people aren't in combat. Uh, at one point, I mean, it did like in World War II more, but now with an insurgency and attacks on the roads and IEDs, you know, there was a point I remember that you may know some of this that uh, Henry where uh, early in the insurgency, because I was still a cadet at West Point and the stat was presented to me by a major in military science class. And it showed that the top three MOSs, uh, military occupational specialties, jobs, right, uh, that were fatalities or wounded in action uh, in the first like two years of the Iraq war insurgency were uh, of course, you know, infantry, but it was uh, uh, military police and uh, 88 Mike truck drivers. Right. And uh, this uh, military science infantry officer uh, was like, well, why would that be guys? You know? And then, you know, we did some discussion on like tactics and it was a pretty interesting day, but what his point was, was uh, well, look like if the, classic tactic is ied then who's on the road a lot you know and of course it's truck drivers and then people don't realize like the extent to which i had a lot of respect for military police in particular in iraq because uh they were just you know and i know that everyone did different things within the military police community but the ones that i dealt with a lot they literally drove around all day visiting police stations like iraqi police stations and like trying to like mentor them and supply them and all this and then you know they were just getting hammered because they were always on the road, you know, but, it, but even so that's a different war than, you know, like the active raid or whatever, you know, and then like, quite frankly, I wasn't like some badass. I mean, the, the, the experience of the Navy SEAL raiding team is, you know, different from mine. And so I think that's valuable and interesting to keep in mind. And I think that what we do need to avoid, and I try really hard to uh, probably not perfectly, but better than most is, this idea that they're, you know, okay, there's two wars, there's three wars, maybe there's more like 10 wars, but some veterans fall into this dismissing others kind of thing, you know, mm -hmm. like someone will hear, oh, well, he was just a loggy or something like, you know, and I'm not, I don't mean like MP, I mean like legit, like a supply sergeant or something. It's like, oh, like that person's service doesn't matter. And, you know, I just think that's really dangerous talk. Um, and I think it's usually bred by insecurity uh, and self-righteousness, which I've always called like the cardinal or original sin of the soldier. But yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So that's a, a long intro that I just wanted to mention. But the book was weird. Uh, one thing that readers will notice is it's like very short for me or for anyone, but especially for me. And that was by design. Um, I had been in L.A. with Bob Shear, a uh, senior editor over at Truthdig, uh, rest in peace, pour some liquor out for our dead homies at Truth Dig. Uh, and now of sheer post. And of course he was like kind of a legendary journalist, you know, 84 years old, like interviewed several presidents. So I was out there visiting him uh, for some work at USC and some other crap. And yeah, me, him and Steve Wasserman from Heyday Books were 
I don't know, I mean, how it came up. We were discussing like patriotism, or we were discussing the forever wars, or how to fight this, you know, how we can make a difference. And it was kind of one of those dark conversations. And Henry, you know these very well, because that's like how soldiers get by is like macabre humor and stuff. But, you know, it was one of those really dark and, and serious conversations of futility, that feeling of the problem's just too big, like we can't change minds. Um, I fall for that a lot, you know, especially with this stuff that's going on in the streets. I think to myself, like, oh, my God, like, I can't persuade my father. Like, how am I going to persuade anyone else? And, you know, are we, are people just too far apart? Uh, uh, is it Are some people unreachable? These are dangerous concepts, although they're reasonable. I mean, there's there's a reason it feels that way. But we're having one of those conversations about ending the wars or reframing American foreign policy. And then, like I said on the Zoom talk the other night, you know, either Bob or I or both said something to the effect of, you know, if we don't conceptually change the entire notion of what it means to like be an American and, and more specifically be an American patriot, like if we don't have a philosophical and cultural change, then like we're not, this is all for nil. And uh, that drove one of us to throw sort of the, you know, the, uh, buzzword patriotic descent out there uh, the idea that if we don't challenge the very notion of patriotism uh, what value it has if any um, how it could be renegotiated sort of reframed and uh, Steve Wasserman who is an old friend of Bob uh, he's younger than Bob he's the uh, you know kind of the head of the heyday books out of Berkeley uh, he said to uh, me he said do you think you could write that up uh, and you know like the whole thing, like this new, like philosophical kind of take. And I said, yeah, of course I can. I can do anything, you know? And uh, he's like, all right, well, I want like a coffee table treatise on this, you know, like not some like huge book, you know, I, I want something that's uh, that, that's different from what you would maybe normally do. And uh, uh, more like an extended essay, I guess, than, uh, than your typical book. And so that's what he asked for. And I had to write it really quick, actually, uh, relatively, you know, for the publishing industry. And uh, this is kind of, uh, this is kind of how it came out. And it, it, it does read like an essay. So it's, you know, it's, uh, it's like three things that are going on. And then I'll kind of stop there. It's, uh, it's, it's only like 160 pages, but it's part memoir again, right? Just like the last book was, but this one's a little broader, whereas the last book was more focused on my time in Iraq. Uh, a little bit memoir, uh, a lot of bit like philosophical take on what patriotism is, how it ought to be reframed, and why dissent can be the most patriotic of things. And then, uh, and then, and then, of course, because it's me and and it's important. It's you know history, so uh, a history of dissenters, particularly military dissenters. Uh, throughout our history. I mean, we're, I think I talk basically like War of 1812 or Civil War uh, or Mexican-American War all the way up to uh, Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan showing that there is a long history to this. So in other words, what I'm describing, what I'm calling for in terms of a, a reformulation of the dissent as a, a form of patriotism is actually has a, it has a long backstory. And that's kind of what I was getting at. And so... Uh, here it is, and I'm cautiously optimistic that this one is going to, you know, uh, make some waves and uh, get in some people's hands. So far, so good. You mentioned Ghost Riders of Baghdad a little bit. Um, I'm curious about 
not so much direct comparisons between the two books, but how would you say your personal opinions on patriotism and dissent changed between the time you wrote Ghost Riders and now Patriotic Dissent? Yeah, that's a great question. No one's really asked me that yet. Um, uh, I, I went... Uh, I've undergone, like most of us in this, you know, movement, so to speak, I've undergone like an intellectual and sort of ethical journey, uh, an evolution, really. And so when I wrote Ghost Riders, which was in 2014, my, uh, the, the, the end of my second year of grad school, um, I had only recently been back from Afghanistan. Um, I knew a lot of stuff, but... I wasn't like fully developed in my critique, like my systemic critique of the American militarist state. I mean, no doubt like an average person would read that and be like, Oh, this is like a radical, like kind of leftist dude. But, uh, but those people who are like a little bit more in the know and kind of follow this stuff would, will recognize that at the time of ghost writers, I was like skeptical of like patriotism and like masculinity and stuff, but I wasn't, talking about that a whole lot i mean i just i just didn't have the the language or the expertise i hadn't really thought through it quite enough yet i was floundering a little like just finding my voice and i'd never written anything publicly so this book definitely is a little bit more developed conceptually uh so even though it's a shorter book it's probably a little more uh clear in its like hypothesis and uh, i've thought through this more systemic critique of empire and uh, and the culture that's behind it, which is really what this book is about, right? It's about the the problematic culture of patriotism. And it really does seek to answer the question, is patriotism toxic? As Bob Shear says all the time, you know, he always asks me that question. And so I think it's an important question, like, is patriotism toxic? Uh, and, and I think that what I kind of come up with is like, yes, usually is is basically my answer you know which is a bit of a hedge but the idea being um you know it would be um it's almost always toxic it's almost always rooted in a history of sort of imperialism and patriarchy it's almost always been a tool of oppression uh, both at home and overseas it's almost always been a way to dupe folks uh into doing awful things off times that aren't in their own interest or the nations or certain humanities uh however right uh i say there are variations on a spectrum of patriotism uh that are that are complicated and that uh at the far end there has always been this tradition of sort of patriotic descent this idea that um at its best, patriotism is the sense that I want my country to be what it is capable of, right? Live up to its aspirations, um, despite the fact that so many of our founding documents, which I, which I talk about, are flawed and stuff. Uh, you know, it would not be fair not to admit that there has been beautiful stuff written by American theorists and politicians, that there have been even some of whom were like super hypocritical and all that, but there is something in the political tradition that comes out of the United States, especially in the late enlightenment around the revolution that is valuable and that should we live up to it, uh, it could, it could be worthwhile. And so real patriarch dissent then is not only a systemic critique of current policy, but it's a demand 
a participatory, which, you know, I talk about in the book, the different types, but a participatory demand that the nation live up, up to its principles. And that's why I call uh, patriotic dissent a, you know, participatory principled patriotism, right? And so, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of uh, what that was about. I could not have written that. Right. I couldn't have like thought through and articulated that at the time I was writing Ghost Riders of Baghdad. I was still in the army. Uh, I was really in some like personal turmoil emotionally, I mean, and making my way in the world. I had no idea that I was going to be like a writer. I just wanted to tell this story. A lot of it was just vomit. Like I was just vomiting out what had been in my head for years. Uh, this was more thought through and organized, I guess. So, there's a couple of places in the book where you discuss some some deeply personal anecdotes um, to include being suicidal and dealing with the emotions slash reality of the death and injuries of your own soldiers. I'm curious, not so much on a um, an abstract level, but a more a more personal one. What discoveries did you make for yourself when you were writing this book? Because it's it's, it's deeply personal. You know, yeah, I, this was also a, a bit of therapy, but I wrote it at a little bit of a better place in my life. I had come out of a couple of hard years, you know, as you know, from the insider baseball, and I've had like a really good um, eight or nine months or so, you know, and um, kind of got my life together, whatever that means. You know, I understand it's halting. It could fall back again, but this book was, I was really plugging out the last bit of it just as I was kind of coming into a healthier place in my life that I'm, that I'm living in now. And so there's a lot of sharing. There's a lot of kind of confession and admission of like past problems and tough times and phases that I've went through that, again, I'm not saying I'm out of, but, uh, but it was more like reflective. Uh, I could, I could look at it a little bit more objectively and say like, this is what I was feeling. This is where I was at um, with the hindsight of a little bit of help in my personal life. So unlike Ghost Riders, which was completely just written in the breach, you know, uh, of just turmoil and again, still in the army and like, not sure what all this is about and, and where I'm, where my life's going to go. This one was a little more reflective. The guys and I love doing the podcast, being able to share our experiences in the military with, allies and supporters means the world to us but we can't do all the work we need you to share an episode of ours with someone anyone whom you like might think might be affected by it young people looking to join the military or parents advocating for one conscientious citizens who care about the violence the u.s wages in their name advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for females and minorities and inflicts on minorities around the globe and anyone else you think it might affect please take a moment pause the episode share this with them now our podcast is supported in a few different ways first there's patreon where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and i pay for some of the podcast's expenses those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, 
stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to, uh, to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So, let's bring out these honorary producers. And they are Will Arenz, Fahim Shirazi, James Obar, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Emma P., Janet Hansen, Lawrence Taylor, Tristan Oliver, Marwan Marwan, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can always contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt.com. Make sure you check for promo codes before you order. And now, let's get back to the podcast. The experience of writing it is always tough. People used to ask me all the time, "Do uh, is it healthy for you? Like, is it a net positive for you to be a writer, given what you write about? Like, is it good for your mental health? I used to get that question a lot, like, early on when I would do, like, podcasts and stuff. And uh, I would always say, like, yes and no, right? Uh, yes, it gives me something to do. Uh, yes, because I love it and I'm a dork and I want to read and write because it's like what I enjoy and it's also like what I can do, right? You know, you know me and Mark's like to each according to his ability, you know, like that's my ability, right? Yeah. Um, so that was always yes, but then the negative was always, but I mean, I make a living reliving the worst things in some cases, you know, when I write personal stuff and then reliving it because usually I don't tell my own personal stories per se, but when you write about Yemeni kids starving to death, as a matter of course, just like what I do, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a dark thing. So then I always felt like, am I like ever going to be able to get out of the morass? You know what I mean? Like, am I going to be stuck here mentally by virtue of the decisions I've made? Like, should I start writing, you know, kindergarten kids books? I used to think now, of course, side note, those would be some dark kindergarten books. This would not be the BFG. You know what I mean? It would be like, you know, but anyway. Uh, but I used to say that, like, maybe a different job would be actually almost better. Um, so I was always torn about it. Uh, right now, and when I wrote the book, I think overall, it was definitely more in the positive. Like, definitely more in the therapeutic and cathartic. Uh, it was, I mean, it's kind of the culmination of a lot of ideas that I've been tossing around from, you know, 2000, from when I left West Point. So like 2017 till now. So it was, it's really a summary in a sense of like the philosophical, the philosophical conclusions I'd come to um, during that really tough transition from, you know, fairly well-regarded military officer to civilian to kind of writer activist. So yeah, I think overall the experience was pretty positive. And one of the things that was interesting is more than even my normal writing, which I do tend to write fairly quickly, but this just like really flowed off the fingertips and off the head. Like I didn't have to do a whole lot of 
research. I mean, I, I mean, there's a lot of research heavy history and stuff, but I'd already done most of that work. So I was able to just go back. But what I mean is like the prose itself was like there. It's shit that I stayed up at night thinking about a year ago. And like, so it was like, in other words, all the data was there and like Bob and Steve just kind of gave me the outlet and opportunity. And I'm really thankful to Heyday who was super great, like to just let it go, you know, to like, just let it out. And, uh, so the stuff was there and would have been kind of a waste if I didn't publish it, I think. And, uh, yeah, so that's what the experience was like. I hope that it was, it was pretty positive, I would say. And, and I'm really, I'm pretty happy with the output. I mean, no, I don't read the stuff that I write like ever again, usually like I never want to see it ever again. Like I hate it. Like I can't open ghost writers. I'm like, Oh my God, did you really write like that? I'm like embarrassed of myself. I just, I mean, it's just even the technical writing. Like I'm just like, Oh my God, you were terrible. But, uh, but this one, I mean, I didn't go back and like read the whole thing. But I've gone back and like looked at it to give like book talks and stuff. And uh, more than usual, when I read it, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm pretty happy with this. Like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy with it, which is rare for me, you know. Well, I'm, I'm really uh, enlivened to hear that, Annie. That that it's been such a, a great and cathartic experience for you being able to <clears throat> get those ideas out there. I'm curious. Um, did you notice any role? of heroism or the more black and white ideas played during uh, the time of going the book? Did you, how did you see the notion of a hero doing it? Maybe compared a little bit to Ghost Riders and uh, was there points where that concept started to, to buckle under examination? Yeah. Like what it means to be a hero and otherwise. Yeah. 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 Um, totally. And I think in Ghost Riders, I was still, like all of us are product, I think, of nature, nurture, the kind of culture we were raised in. And that's uh, family, that's neighborhood, that's profession, it's class. And, uh, and it's also America, right? It's just the end generation. So we're all a product of all those things. And I think that like the question for any human being is the extent to which finally, eventually, you can kind of transcend that right? Like transcend the bias, identify it, and then say, no, I'm going to like take an empirical look at whatever this is and then come to a new decision about what's right. You know, most people never even try. Fewer than that ever get to even noticing the bias, you know, and then fewer still do anything about it and stuff like that. And I am somewhere on that spectrum and not at, I'm not there yet, but I will say that at the time of ghost writers, uh, I was definitely, still romantically attached to the classic hero within the military. I mean, people who are conservative or more pro-war or even just more pro like military and like the current classic construct would not think that they'd be like, are you kidding? Like you totally lambasted the military and like every concept of patriotism and ghost riders. But I know, and you know, and people who kind of read this stuff a lot know, like, no, I was still there. You know, I mean, I think there was still like a romance to this sort of like sacrifice and war. I talk a lot about military service and like when i go back and look at any of the essays and stuff that i wrote in that time where i talk about the draft and who served and who didn't i i sense uh in my writing a degree of like self-righteousness and also a little bit of like judgmental criticism of those who don't serve um one could read and i didn't mean to do that but i know i was probably subconsciously 
uh, but also if you read some of the stuff, even from like an intellectual standpoint, it's clear that I'm saying, look, it's better that the guys at Harvard served, right? Uh, rather than just, you know, what I should just be saying is like, it is better that there was more, you know, divided service, a little bit more fairly spread and that there was the sense that everyone is equal and everyone has like an equal obligation and responsibility. But if you really read it, Ghost Rider, some of that stuff, it's clear that I've still got the sort of mythological military hero a little bit high up in my pantheon, despite the critique. Uh, that's never probably going to completely go away. I mean, I was raised in the martyrdom culture of, you know, Irish Catholic death cult. Um, there's probably always going to be that aspect of like sort of the military sacrifice and uh, heroics that are associated with it. Um, what's different, I think, is that in the time between Ghost Riders and this book, uh, and in terms of publication, we're, you know, we're talking about almost five full years. Um, my heroes have legitimately changed. And like, they are folks who had the courage to fight conventions and fight militarism even at the expense of being called weak or being called uh, soft or emasculine. And it, that's been a big change for me in my life is, you know, I, I would say back in the day that I supported all that, but in practice, I was like, Oh, but you know, you don't want to look weak. Like you have to, you know, all that. And uh, certainly if you look at the people that I choose to highlight in this book, they, they have changed since some of my early writing and like my notion of heroism. Now I'll just give you an example. Like, you know, I don't know if he'll listen to this and like me and my father have like a very strained relationship and it's a shame. And we disagree about why that is and a million things, but we do disagree a lot about politics over the years. And, um, you know, I think like old Danny, okay. My dad was anti-war, uh, as a teenager, like, straight up like actively sort of opposed to the vietnam war um didn't want to like be in the like i'm not saying he would have like run away from it but like didn't want to be in the army didn't think it was right to like you know fight in that war that it wasn't worth it he followed the path of more sort of the classic reagan democrat to republican mm -hmm. transition that was so many baby boomers did right um and he then got more and more and more like politically conservative and like pro-war and stuff well Five years ago, when we would argue about our positions on war, whether I said it, which I think a few times I terribly did, uh, or thought it most of the time, there was a part of me that was feeling and probably communicating to him, and I think this kind of answers the question in a very indirect but important way, communicating to him, who are you to question my anti-war posture because I've been in two wars and you didn't want to be in them or like you didn't. That is intellectually and ethically paltry and it is satisfying in a like hit off the crack pipe sort of way. Do you know what I mean? Like an initial, but most things in our lives that feel that way, they're, they're not so great. 
You know what I mean? There's something missing. Now, at the time of writing Patriotic Descent, my position on my, for example, and, and I talk about my father, I'm not talking about just him. I'm talking about like a generational argument, like a classic case of like the pro and anti-war folks talking to each other. And there is an intergenerational aspect. And I bet that there are probably a million people who have this exact sort of relationship with like their father, uncle, insert whatever here. Now my position is this. Um, I'm proud of my, what, no matter what he thinks today, right? and that's okay, and everyone's entitled to it. I am, now, I am proud of my father's position as a 17-year-old because uh, I, at 17, didn't feel that way about my wars of my generation. Like, his instinct, his gut was right. And so rather than, like, how toxic of me, right, to, to play the classic hero of you don't get an opinion because you didn't serve in the war, so how dare you question me? That's just intellectually just terrible, um, logical fallacy. Now it's more like, okay, how can we have empathy? How can we reframe the entire concept of, of who gets an opinion, who has value, what platform matters, what makes you a man? And so now I say, and like, I want to almost say to him, you know, like, and I haven't, you know, we've been really not speaking much, but like, I, I want to say to him, like, dad, like, and I want to say it to the whole people who went through his same development, dad, like, I'm like, super proud of that person. Like, I would have liked to have met that person. That doesn't mean that the person you are now is bad. It just means like, I'm sorry if I communicated that other way, because that is toxic. That's toxic masculinity, that's toxic militarism, and it's toxic patriotism. And this book is a rejection of that. And, and I'm not there, none of us are completely there, but I'm closer to saying the problem is the fact that we think having killed people or being in a position to want to or be willing to makes you not only tougher, better, but like more valuable right? To society. And so the heroes I chose, even though many of them had been there, done that, and then had like a road to Damascus, they, uh, they reject that. They reject the fetishization of that and the toxicity of that. So I, and that's a really strange answer maybe, but like I've never really talked about that before. And I think I'm onto something or I hope, I don't know, let the, let the listeners decide A while ago, you were on. Um, you had an interview on Eyes Left. It wasn't specifically about your book, but some some of the subjects got covered there. And um, I really enjoyed. I'm gonna, I'm going to butcher it here, so I'm just paraphrasing. But uh, I really enjoyed your discussion with them about how that we as veterans, as as former, as people who went to war for America and came home, that we have a deep obligation to demystify. The critiques of the military to such a degree that civilians, non-military folks like your dad can hold the same standing in an argument with a combat veteran because it's on the facts and it's not on the emotions. Um, but I, I, I found that really powerful and I, I, um, I know that I'm still making my way through that journey myself, um, you know, still have some of the same hero ideas that I did when I was in. They've changed and morphed a lot. Um, and definitely lean much more towards any war these days. Um, but I think that that's a really important thing. And I'm really glad that you brought that up and that you discuss it at length in the book that civilians role in this is very powerful and we need as veterans need to make it powerful for them. And I think that's what, what we do here uh, on the podcast. Yeah, I totally think 
you know, like we're a veterans progressive podcast. So like one could look at that and say like, uh, you guys are selling based on the platform, right? Not selling like in a literal sense, but you know, selling yourselves on the fact that you have this extra credibility. And I would say like guilty, like we live in the world as it is. And in the world as it is, we, we, as a society has given veterans a platform. It has given us like a credibility with the public that we might not otherwise have. And so what I, yeah, what I argued on eyes left, what I think I argue in the book is that is a responsibility. Like all applause, all, uh, law, you know, laurels that are put upon you by a society are responsibilities, just like leadership. Um, and most people don't look at it that way, but I think we really ought to. So if society, even if I don't agree that a veteran is just automatically better or more valuable in his opinions or his opinions are more valuable, even if I don't agree with that, and I don't agree with that any longer, and I haven't for quite some time, but it was a slow process. Um, I, society has said that I do, or that we do, and I'm not going to, so I, my obliga- I have an obligation then. My obligation is to use it to those whom, you know, great things are given, right? You know, great responsibility. Um, and then the second part is, as part of that platform, as part of that responsibility that has been kind of given to us by society, I think we have an obligation to say, no, no. Like, yes, I'm going to take it, but since you've given me this platform, I'm going to reject that. I'm going to reject the toxic sort of fetishizing of militarism that is inherent in that very sentiment that the veteran matters more. And so, in a sense, if we're doing our job, we make ourselves almost obsolete, right? Uh, And, like, that's okay. That's okay. I want people to listen to what I have to say because I read books and I think a lot. And I'm not saying that experience doesn't play into it. I think it should. I just don't think that our veteran experience, which if you take sandpaper to it, if you, it's very powerful to me to get to the root of all things. Like what are, what is this for? Like look at anything. What is it for? If you scrub away the bullshit, the veneer, the pomp, right what's what what is there well it's 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 a willingness to kill and die right for an abstraction almost always right it's never your home in american history or even in most countries it is rarely your home you're fighting for so you fight for an abstraction whether that be the state or the ideology of said state or the economic interest they are in you're fighting for an abstraction your willingness to kill and die i'm just not sure well i'm i am sure front-loading that, prioritizing that, uh, that the opinions of folks who were willing to do that, uh, I don't know. I think that that is very dangerous. And so, yeah, we have an obligation to sort of try to make that obsolete. And if it means we don't get invited to as many podcasts, uh, well, then good. Because uh, if it was easy and if it benefited us, then, like, it's probably – not as profound an argument, right? If, if the argument you're making benefits you, even if that's not the reason you're making it, there's always going to be, A, the suspicion that it is, and B, like, it's just not as powerful, right? Because it does, there's no sacrifice inherent. And there I go with, like, you know, obviously the Catholic martyrdom thing, but I think that it's valuable. And so, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's what I talk about in terms of 
look, I'm going to tell you the stories of these military dissenters, but my point is that we need to rise above that. And like salvation's not going to come from your veterans. No. If we, if we can be a catalyst, if we can be a, you know, vanguard to not go full throated Bolshevism, but if we can be kind of like a vanguard, vanguard, then that's great. But this needs to be like a society rising and rejecting the current formation of patriotism, not the military grabbing everyone's hand and like, you know, white savior, which literally given the records of the combat forces would be the case, like white savior military, like, sorry, that's not a good idea. That's not what should happen. White male savior at that. Yeah. Well, Danny, I, I think that's a, a great place to wrap it up for today. Um, I'm, I'm really excited for the book to come out. I, um, I'm hoping that uh, listeners, I'm hoping you guys all go out and pick it up. It's going to be out on uh, September 8th. Um, Danny, can you tell the listeners where they can uh, purchase your book? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for doing this, by the way, Henry. Um, it's interesting. I, I really thought through some stuff in yeah. the interview here that I hadn't before. But the, the book, uh, look, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Target. You can get it on Walmart. Don't do that. Don't do that. Go to Heyday Books, right? H-E-Y-D-A-Y. Heyday Books. Go to their website. Google it. Type Patriotic Descent. Book is there with all the reviews. There's a pre-order link. And then once it comes out, there's an order link. You know, support uh, publishers and the book industry. Um, that's the best place to find it. If you go to my website, the link of the picture of my book will take you right there. Okay, but you could also just Google it. So do that. And, like, I mean, I'm always flattered if people want to read the book. And I uh, appreciate it. All right. That sounds good. Well, folks, uh, thank you for joining us today, and uh, we'll be back again soon. Take care. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill, and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. I hope you'll pay attention, I will not detain.